Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, July 1st, and you know what that means. West off, I need fireworks, I need the lion's roar, I need some sort of British sound effect. Because we have finally arrived. It is the start of Wimbledon. Play will begin today, Monday, and you know, proceed half of the men's draw, half of the women's draw throughout the first day. Joining me to talk about that, to talk about our last few results and how those results may affect this weekend's or this week's play, this next fortnight we're going to see. He has become my Monday regular guest on this mini break podcast. You know his fantastic work uh, from the tennis website, Tennis with an Accent. Matt Zemick, welcome back to the Mini Break Podcast. Thanks for having me back. And, you know, the most British sound imaginable, at least for this time of year, is the NBC Wimbledon trumpet fanfare. <laughs> and I would love to say that, but I think that we might have copyright issues and I don't want to get us in trouble right off the bat. Oh, yeah. I'm not saying you can play. I'm just saying that is the most British sound imaginable for this time of year. Westoff, give me something. Maybe give me a queen sound effect or something royal. I'm just feeling something. You know, it is Wimbledon. It is that time of year. And I always say, and recently I've been on a crusade on my thoughts of grass tennis being my least favorite surface, at least tennis aesthetic-wise. But Wimbledon is an event in itself. One cannot deny it is the grandest, perhaps, of the Grand Slams. Uh, That being said, Matt, you excited for this week? Yes, and, you know, Wimbledon is really the Brazilian soccer player of tennis tournaments. It's recognizable (laughs) by one name. Doesn't need a second one. (laughs) Spoken like a true sports editor. I like that reference. I'm all in on that. I do want to say before we begin as my thank you, of course, and the thing I was busy reading this weekend, getting ready for this podcast. Matt, I know you guys have uh, previews up on TennisAccent.com for the men's draw, for the women's draw. Just real quick off the bat, what can our listeners expect from you uh, throughout this tournament? Well, first off, readers of our website at TennisAccent.com will note that we have some specific categories other than, you know, runner-up and champion and upset victim. And one of our categories that we use for every major tournament predictions piece at Tennis with an Accent is surprise semifinalist. So on the WTA piece, um, all nine of our panelists predicted a different surprise semifinalist. And then another one of our special categories is the most uh, to gain, meaning, you know, the person who's not under huge pressure but could take a huge step forward with a big performance. So we had 10 different panelists for our men's uh, section, and we had 10 different answers for most to gain. So you get a lot of variety of viewpoints uh, for those two articles. Uh, in terms of what's coming up at Wimbledon, it has with an accent, um, the main thing is you know multiple articles every day. You can take that to the bank. Uh, and then we have a special two-part podcast with a big name in tennis. Uh, part one is going to run on, on Tuesday. It's going to drop on Tuesday. Part two is going to drop on Saturday night before Middle Sunday because I know that on Middle Sunday, people will be wanting to listen to podcasts since there won't be live tennis. So we'll move up our podcast schedule for that. And then um, we're going to have Andrew Burton with his ATP Lost Boys charts and graphs also on the middle weekend of Wimbledon. So those are some of the highlights coming up. 
Awesome. And again, for our listeners, go check that out. That's tennisaccent.com. Again, the Tennis with an Accent podcast. Be on the lookout for that. All of that stuff on the Cracked Rackets front. We will be coming to you with mini breaks all week long. I think we're even going to bring out the weekend podcast editions this time. As you mentioned, that middle Sunday, perfect time to catch up on all the action from what always is an incredibly busy first week at the Grand Slam event. So be on the lookout for that. You know, like, rate, subscribe, review this pod, uh, all of that stuff, all of Matt's stuff as well, because this is, you know, it's prime time. It's go time for tennis. All of the attention will be turned. You know, ESPN has exclusive rights to this event, so a lot of people are going to be seeing a lot of tennis on their screens. Let's enjoy this one. That being said, before we talk about Wimbledon, there was a little bit of tennis to clean up this weekend before we get into the Grand Slam. Matt, you ready to rock and roll? Absolutely. Let's do it. Well, then, the tournament I want to start with, and uh, for listeners of this podcast, they know I'm particularly biased for the next-gen American men. A lot of these guys age, you know, 1995, 96, 97, myself being a 95 American male. I obviously identify with these players quite a bit. And we have another breakthrough performance from the year of American men that, dare I say, has performed the best thus far of that young group. 1997 uh, American Taylor Fritz wins his his first ATP tournament uh, this weekend in Eastbourne. In the final, he knocks out fellow American Sam Query, 6-3, 6-4. I guess just starting even before we get big picture on Fritz, or on Fritz, Matt, just the level of tennis he displayed against Query. Off, you know, a lot of times a young guy, they may stumble into a title, whether it's the draw or something else. But for Fritz, he was the best player on the court, I thought, all week long. Oh, absolutely. Without question. I mean, he was thumping the ball. He was playing with free flowing confidence. And, you know, the main thing to emphasize for someone in Taylor Fritz's position, not just in terms of, you know, relative lack of trophies, but also, you know, he's still, he's still relatively young for a person in his position. You know, we, we, we talk about the majors for a lot of players, but for someone such as Fritz, uh, you know, winning this title is a big, big deal. And and if he doesn't do well at Wimbledon, so what? He bagged a title, and it's good to have that particular experience of lifting a trophy, being in a in a trophy ceremony as the champion. You know that that is a big forward step for him. And so, you know, m- most of the time we and actually, you know, when we recap recap the week in tennis, we're going to hit on uh, a, a women's player who's in the exact inverse situation relative to Fritz but for Fritz you know he he he's he will be playing with house money at Wimbledon uh this is a this is a big step for him you look at the things he did well in the final against Sam in what was, I believe, like an hour 10, oh, an hour long match, hour four, uh, 54 seconds. I mean, he just holds serve with such authority. And it seemed like at times throughout the week, you look at his run in this tournament, uh, the only match he goes three sets, his first round match against Paya, but four and six against her catch, six and three against Kyle Edmund, three and four against Query. It seemed like whenever he found himself in trouble on his serve, whether he was missing first serves or down break points it didn't matter he could find second serves and then just unleash on that next ball as you mentioned one of the things I think that benefits him so much on this surface where it's so easy for a player to get misfooted is that if he hits a good serve it doesn't matter if you hit get your return to his forehand or his backhand side he's capable of going you know Mach 10 down the line cross court off both of those wings and in the modern game to be that explosive on both sides of your ground strokes I 
I think it bears really, really well for him on this surface and to see him get a title so early. I really think grass could be the place where he has the most success. And I know it's such a short part of the season, but still, he just looks so suited for the surface. Absolutely. Well, you know, they're a, a player we know very well, Nick Kyrgios, clearly, you know, there is no debate that grass is going to augment his game to an extent and in various ways that the other surfaces simply won't. And I think that we're, we, we can say, I think we can pretty safely say that with Taylor Fritz, that, that the surface is going to reward his game more than anything else. And, you know, he beat uh, Sam Query, another example of one, two tennis, huge serve, huge forehand. And a, as you noted, that Fritz is also able to bring a relatively explosive backhand to the table. So, I mean, that, that is another tool in the toolbox and, on grass, you know, he, he can play an even wider array of short points precisely because, as you noted, he can finish them from both wings. So definitely grass is the serve, the surface that's going to augment his game the most. You mentioned those shorter points, and I, I agree with your points. I also just think his contact, uh, I keep saying the word point, but his contact point, just the way he makes uh, contact with his returns, it doesn't matter which, which wing either. He's going to get a cling crack at the ball, and yes, yeah, sometimes the ball will go long, but he never seems to be caught off foot because of his wingspan, because of his ability to anticipate. That being said, getting to your point about how he manages to play a shorter style of tennis on the surface and why it fits him so well. Look, Taylor Fritz is a 21-year-old, and I say this respectfully, there are times when he still looks like he's fighting his body to try and move to a corner. You know, Sam Query hits a backhand to the other corner. He's like, oh my god, I gotta go to the other corner? Like, are you serious? Like, that's not what I'm trying to do right now. And it just looks like, he's like, all right, Legs, like, this is the one. We're getting to this ball in the corner. And that's not to be disrespectful. There are so many times in this match against Query where he seemed to track down an extra ball. But in my opinion, he, he sometimes got away with some floaters that may be against higher quality players he may not have, but the fact that movement is less uh, emphasized, I suppose, on grass than any other surface, it's why I think his game with the big serve, the clean returns, plus one tennis he can play, I think he's well suited for a run here at Wimbledon. Well, you know, Sakib Ali, my uh, partner in crime at Tennis with an Accent, we're we're the co-managers of the site. I do the written editing and and most of the writing, and he does the podcast. Sakib had... Tim Mayot, you know, no, no introduction needed on the podcast earlier this year. And, and, uh, you know, he, he was able to get Mayot to explain why American players generally lag behind most of the rest of the world these days. And one of the specific things that Tim Mayot mentioned was, was court coverage and also the ability to teach how to rotate the body uh, through the backhand, that technique is not as polished from the backhand side, and and more and flowing from that, Mayot expressed how defensive movements and handling defensive positions are not part of what gets emphasized in the Southern California hardcore one-two tennis emphasis, which applies to so many different American players. And Fritz is part of that that general spectrum. So you know, playing defense. It is harder for him now, and it probably is going to be harder for him going into the future. And so, as you've said, grass does not demand quite as much from you in that same way on on defense as clay and hard courts do. So that 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 that's part of the fuller picture with Taylor Fritz on the various surfaces. 
I agree with you. And look, just to wrap up this match, he makes 64% of his first serves and wins 89% of those points. Anytime you can do that, you're going to find yourself at least in a tiebreaker of one, two sets in the match. Also wins 50% of the only 20 break uh, twenty points he plays on his second serve. Uh, I guess last Fritz-related thing, and this is a question I've kind of been poking around to our various guests on the mini break uh, over the past couple of weeks. With this title now, you look at Taylor Fritz on the year. He's eight. 18 and 16. He has the one title. I believe he has five, maybe, uh, I, I think five quarterfinal or better results at the ATP level. He also has a good challenger title win from Newport earlier in the year. He hasn't lost first round of a slam. He's gone through a qualies, I think, at the two uh, uh, Clay Masters events early in the Clay season. You look at that, Matt, and you compare it to fellow young American Francis Tiafo, who's only 13 and 14 on the year, no titles, but he has the two big breakthroughs at the big events, quarterfinals of the Australian Open, quarterfinals of Miami. My question to you, given where they're at at this stage of their career, uh, which development, I suppose, is more encouraging to you to see the Tiafo have the breakthrough at the big events, but then maybe a little less consistency at the 250-500 level, or to see Fritz bring that consistency at the 250-500 level at this point of his career, but maybe not sort of have those huge breakthroughs minus this title? Well, to me, if we're being really honest, I think, you know, both players get an incomplete and that's not a criticism, just that I I see them as just beginning to understand their evolutionary arc and what it's going to take for them uh, to 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 evolve as as tennis players. I I would put both of these uh, different examples pretty much in the same basket just because you'll know that they're getting better when they start being more consistent at the Masters 1000 level, perhaps the 500 level as a first step toward that. But, um, you know, with, with Tiafo, you know, there's, there's, there's a little bit of curios in Tiafo in the sense of, you know, getting playing really well on the big occasion. And when it's, when it's quiet or out of the way, uh, you know, a match doesn't really crackle with, electricity it's not it doesn't all come together for him so you know and, and fritz i mean with his different evolution you know I, I just see him as lagging way behind uh the top players like when he played federer at, at the australian open it was clear that just the enormous gulf between the two players whereas you know tiafo um you know he's he's able to raise his game for some of the better players on tour, which, which tells me that, you know, he has a much higher ceiling than Fritz does, but Fritz has managed to have a higher floor so far, but, but really in the end, both players uh, are just beginning, I think, to sense what they are capable of and what they need to do uh, to carry themselves as tennis players from week to week on tour. So it's very early to say, and and for that reason, I'm not really, I don't really have an especially strong opinion on one being better than the other right now. That's completely fair and the mature sort of answer you get from Matt Zemeck uh, when you come to the Monday mini break. But counterpoint, and I always like to do this, uh, on the Taylor Fritz note, I'm just going to throw some stats your way to me that make the case that you, you mentioned incomplete. 
I would say if you look at what Taylor Fritz has done this year, this is uh, the sort of jump you want from a 21-year-old. He makes the jump. You look at uh, the ATP race to London at this point, number 24 in the standings. He's accumulated 925 points on the year. You look at the live rankings with this title. He's now up to a career high, number 31. You mentioned his results in the slams. Yes, I remember that Federer match, but I believe he beat Monfils. Uh, I don't know if it was the round before, but maybe it was at that Wimbledon. I also remember his four-set loss to Dominic Team. I think that was third-round Wimbledon last year, where he showed that sort of jump in level uh, that, that you know from a 20-year-old to hang with Team over four sets. An impressive performance. I I understand the physical limitations of Taylor Fritz, and you know another thing we've talked about before on this podcast: his lack of, I guess, will. Or I guess he wants to come to the net. It's just. You know, it's always a mixed bag of what's going to happen when he gets up there. But to see that sort of development from this this year, uh, I, I think Jonathan Kelly posted the stat that this is the first time Americans have had three uh, winners of ATP titles at the age of 21 and under since 2003. And when it was that time, it was like Roddick, Blake, and Ginepri or something like that. That is elite company. And right now, I think it's Opelka, Tiafo, and Fritz. That That is the sort of thing you can be really encouraged about if you're a fan of American men's tennis. You can, and yet I would I would look at that stat from Joe Kelly, who you know does a great job, you know, chronicling the story of American tennis. I would look at that stat as kind of a commentary on what in the ever trucking uh, hell happened in those intervening sixteen years between two thousand three and two thousand nineteen. You know, so in other words, it's not so much that wow, what an incredible breakthrough in two thousand nineteen. It's more of wow, we we walked in the desert wilderness for sixteen years like that. Um, you know, because these because these titles, these are not high end titles. These are low end titles, obviously good developments without question. So I'm not trying to rain on anybody's parade, but it is a relatively modest standard. And 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 that has to be kept in mind, not just regarding American tennis, but also to these younger generations who who have to show that they can play and accumulate ATP rankings points at a level which is, you know, reasonably comparable to past generational cohorts such as the Rafa's generation and Federer's generation. I think that's fair. And I, I'm sorry, it wasn't Blake. It was Roddick, Ginepri, and Fish. Um, yes, these are low. And you look at the context, I think in Tiafo's title run in Delray, he beat Del Potro, but that was a coming back from rehab Del Potro. So put in context, whatever you look at Riley Opelka's win in the New York open, he beats Isner for the second time in 2019. But beyond that, you know, Braden Schnur in the final is kind of the thing you dream of if you're Riley Opelka for Fritz here. Uh, yeah, he beats Paya first round, but Paya I think is four nine career on grass. So yeah, there is definitely context. I agree with you. I guess I'm just I'm so ready to be excited about American men's tennis that I'm ready to celebrate this. And you know what? You should. I'm just going to be, you know, you're going to be the good cop. I'm going to be the bad cop. That's how it's going to roll, at least on this issue. That's how we roll on the Monday mini break. We need both. We need someone to, you know, provide the sunshine and we need someone to uh, provide the stern face and the cautionary tale. A little sunshine and rain. Joy. You know, oh. Not getting into the booging. It's a Rothman would have joined me in a duet there. Hey, that's a Wimbledon preview right there. 
<laughs> that's some middle Sunday action. West off, leave it all in. Um, but with that singing in mind, speaking of joy, let's move to another joyful event from this weekend's play, our other ATP event uh, before Wimbledon begins our event in Turkey, where there we have another first-time ATP champion, Lorenzo Sinego, comes uh, uh, comes into this tournament, ends up knocking off number two seed, Adrian Manorino. He then knocks off number, uh, oh, unseeded Pablo Carino Busta. That can't be right. Number four seed, Pablo Carino Busta. Then in the final, young 19-year-old, Miomir Kasmenovic, 6-7-7-6-6-1, to win his first ATP title. Uh, I guess, Matt, uh, just talking about Sinego, this guy, 24 years old, he starts the year outside the top 100 now. He's got the quarterfinal he made at the Masters Series in Monte Carlo to add on to this ATP title. Uh, what do you make of him making his you know breakthrough into the ATP top 50 this year? Well, I live in Phoenix, and this year, some people might know, was the first year of the Phoenix 125K Challenger uh, held during the second week of Indian Wells. Players who lost in the first week of Indian Wells before going to Miami were able to make a pit stop in Phoenix, play a little extra tennis, also catch some go- uh, some golf. And so I was there to see Lorenzo Sinego beat Jeremy Chardy uh, in that Phoenix Challenger. And uh, myself and the people I was chatting to courtside, we all marveled at the fluidity of his service motion and uh, how free-flowing his game really can be. And a lot of Americans probably saw Sonego in round one of Roland Garros and his opponent was Roger Federer. So, I mean, that got, that match got plenty of TV time and uh, people saw him as a deer in the headlights in the first two sets. But then after going down two sets and realizing, Hey, I don't want to leave the court without, you know, leaving some kind of positive impression. uh, He began to loosen up and people could begin to see how his strokes um, can be knitted together. You know, the, his game began to emerge and, and he did show a measure of his considerable talent. So there's a lot of substance there. There's definitely some upside for a player who is still trying to figure out how to play. Uh, he, he obviously put the pieces together in Antalya. Yeah. I mean, look, this 24 year old, again, the four that you mentioned the serve, I'd mentioned the forehand, the fact that he just seems to be so natural moving on any surface he plays on that sort of athleticism, that intrinsic talent. When you have it, uh, it's funny, a little side note for you, Matt. I actually have started to get back into the game of tennis recently, just starting to play more, not get back into the game. I freaking watched too much tennis, but I started to get back into it. And look, I'm not saying I was good before, but I wasn't bad. And, you know, those first two times playing, I was just like, this just doesn't feel right. I'm forcing things. You know, the forehand doesn't feel good. My movement out of the corner is horrible. Today, I hit my first backhand out of the corner with proper depth and pace and spin and just placement that I wanted. It was the first one I was like, oh, I think I'm starting to get back. My point being, Lorenzo Sinego is always back. He's always in the proper position. And yeah, for him to come back in three sets, win this tournament, uh, I think in his match here against Kesmenovic, you look at his serving percentage, 25 aces against one double fault, wins, uh, makes 76% of his first serves, winning 85% of those points, 65% of his second serve points. He only faces one break points and saves it. Yeah, that's the recipe on grass tennis. If you can do that with your serve, it's going to be tough to beat you. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I recall that you, you know, just earlier you mentioned Taylor Fritz, you know, winning 89% of the, the first serve points against Query. I mean, you know, when you get when you get high end numbers like that, you're untouchable. 
Uh, this may be a stretch too far as they're your sponsor, but look, yeah, I, I'm no stats insider expert, but if you're winning 89, 85% of your first serve, hitting 25 aces on the match, you're probably going to win it. Absolutely. Yeah, so credit to him. Real quickly to tie a bow on this, Miomir Kasmenovic, yes, he loses his final here, but you look at his results uh, in the run-up. He beats in his first-round match, I believe, yeah, another, a next-gen matchup, beats Munar in straights. Another one beats Umbert in straights. He knocks off Victor Troisky, a fellow Serbian. Then he knocks off an informed Jordan Thompson, 6-7-7-6-7-6. You add this result onto his results earlier in the year, making the quarterfinals of Indian Wells. And yes, that was with a default match, but still great results for the young player. He's now find his w- found his way into the top 75. I mean, is there a weapon from Kasmenovic? I don't know if I'd say there's one defining thing in this final. Yeah, he probably had dead legs, but eight double faults against six aces, never going to get the job done. He faced nine break points, I think, on the match, but just... Another guy so fluid, it doesn't matter what his positioning is on the court. He's going to get some sort of defensive deep ball, you know, heavy elevation to buy himself time back. And then if you leave one short, you know, don't be surprised if he's going to snap off an angle cross court uh, because he has that sort of firepower as well. I guess, uh, Matt, I, I, I want to hear your Kesmenovic thoughts, but he's just another one of the guys, I would say, in this long crop of talented next-gen ATP players. Well, what strikes me about him is that he's he's been able to make some advancements in in several tournaments of note this year. And it's not as though he goes from tour stop to tour stop and is utterly flummoxed and then maybe has one moment where he pokes through and and, and shows something. He's showing something on different surfaces, on different continents uh, that that shows me that he has a level head on his shoulders, which to me stands out as his most important weapon. I mean, you know, not having that level head is something which sabotages so many promising careers. I think he's already well ahead of the game in that particular regard. This made, uh, uh, I don't know if this reference is for you, but it's sort of like, I guess, his resume this year, it's a combination of Fritz and Tiafa, a little Hannah Montana. You get the best of both worlds because for him to have the quarterfinal at the Masters, the final at the ATP, uh, I believe, what is this, at 250 level. Yeah, that's the sort of progression you want to see from your former world junior number one at age 19. Uh, any final thoughts on this, man? Are you ready to move on to our last tournament? Just that he's clearly ahead of schedule. That's that's the main thing to note right now. You don't want to mention you're an avid fan of Hannah Montana? Uh, if, if I was a fan, I would mention it. <laughs> All right, that's the honesty we come to expect from you, Matt, so I appreciate it. But with that being said, speaking of honest, we got some honest-to-goodness great results this weekend at the last event we want to talk about, the WTA event this weekend in Eastbourne, an event very prevalent, it feels like, to this preview to Wimbledon as number two seed Karolina Pliskova knocks off number four seed and former Wimbledon champion Angelique Kerber in the final uh, 6-1 to 6 I believe 6-1 to 6-4. Um, my question to you, Matt, uh, you mentioned on an earlier podcast, Pliskova and her, you know, we talked about the stereotype. She, her game should be good on grass, but it seems like sometimes she just can't bend down on the surface. Well, now she's done this before Wimbledon. What does that mean to you heading into the tournament? Yeah, so this is a fascinating conversation. And we talked about Taylor Fritz earlier where, you know, winning that 250 
on grass right before Wimbledon is a bigger deal than anything he might do at Wimbledon. You know, if he loses in the first round, so what? He has his first title. That takes precedence. So with Pliskova, it's the exact opposite. Okay, so she won this nice little Wimbledon warm-up, and she's won a Wimbledon warm-up title before, if I'm not mistaken. But Wimbledon is the big deal. Wimbledon has been her her albatross. It's been her obstacle. She hasn't gotten past Manic Monday at this tournament yet in her career. And so this Eastbourne title, certainly good, certainly a display of top-class tennis. I mean, she really was a lawnmower this past week, lost very few games. I mean, she was genuinely dominant at this tournament. But Eastbourne shows that, you know, this is a player who should be good on grass, should be able to deliver the goods at the, the world's most famous tennis tournament. So, you know, what what happens if Pliskova loses in week one or on Manic Monday? You know, how are we going to rethink or reassess the, the Eastbourne title? You know, will, it, will, will we look at it as something which exists independently on itself and, you know, it, 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 as something which shouldn't reflect in any way on her Wimbledon? Or should it be a sign that she shouldn't play the week before and she should save a little more in the tank for the tournament that really, really counts? Let, let it be noted. Some people on tennis Twitter pointed this out to me, so I can't take credit for it. I've got some really whip-smart tweeps who you know, are informing and educating me as I go along here. In 2019, Pliskova has won warm-up events before each of the three majors. Brisbane before the Australian Open, Rome before Roland Garros, and now Eastbourne before Wimbledon. So what do we make of a player who is peaking all the time I mean, in 2019, it's literally all the time, three out of three in the in the warm-up events before the majors and then can't summon up the same level of quality. Now, in Australia, she she was excellent. Lucky to get past Serena because of that ankle roll for Serena on match point. Um, but nevertheless, once she made use of that lucky break and then played a very high-level semifinal against Naomi Osaka before losing. But at Roland Garros, the magic wasn't there, so... At Wimbledon, man, it's going to be a fascinating drama to see what she does on the heels of this Eastbourne title. You know, she if, if she crashes out early, it's a huge story. If she wins it all, it's a huge story. And, you know, but the, at least the goal she should shoot for is the quarterfinals. You know, to get rid of that duck, much as Alexander Zverev um, going into Roland Garros in 2018, you know, had never made a major quarter. She needs to make a Wimbledon quarterfinal so that she can get rid of that onerous, burdensome statement, you know, that she's never gotten past Manic Monday at the championships. I think that's completely fair. I'm glad you mentioned that fact that, you know, she makes that semifinal of the Australian Open. She certainly showed the level uh, to win that major. But, yeah, I— it's Carolina Pliskova is such a fascinating player. It's so interesting because, you know, I believe last week she lost first round to her, her twin sister in a match that was the exact level of a match you expect to see when two twin sisters are playing their, each other on a, in a professional match. You could just tell the nerves, either both sides, neither played particularly well. Uh, and then, yeah, she comes and does this. Uh, I just... Uh, 
I would be so satisfied with a Pliskova title in Wimbledon. And I really do think you look at the field, I think Ashley Barty has to enter as the favorite given what she's done. Uh, you know, she gets a title on grass, adding on to the fact that she's a French Open champion, made the quarterfinals of the Australian Open. But in that next batch of tier two contenders, Pliskova's right at the top of the list. Absolutely. And and just to nail this point down, Pliskova winning would be the most feel-good story at, at Wimbledon on the women's side, without without question. Uh, um, you know, Petra Kvitova, Petra Kvitova would be yeah. in the same class, but Venus. but really, you know, she oh, still Venus does title? have v- Venus would be Venus would be spectacular too. Yes, but but Plish, I mean, you know, if you talk to people on tennis Twitter, they don't generally warm to Pliskova. So in terms of like what what champion would be the best received by tennis Twitter, it would be Kvitova. You know, everybody loves Petra, and it would be a very powerful story. But best player never to win a major, you know, that is one of the things that if you cover tennis or golf, uh, it, it carries a special kind of poignancy. And so Pliskova slaying her demons at Wimbledon, purely in terms of a, a profound career breakthrough, that would be the best story. So so Kvitova would have the emotional resonance you know, for the world, but purely as a tennis player, Pliskova would be my number one story. I think that is a perfect time to transition then to our coverage of Wimbledon. You talk about that being the number one story. There are so many fascinating storylines on both the men's and women's side of the draw, but you just brought up a fascinating idea, and you know at this point I am prone to tangents, so let's have a little fun here. You mentioned Petra Kvitova, Venus, uh, uh, you know, uh, Pliskova being the best, uh, the most well-received champions. Let's do the flip side. Who would be the least well-received champions on tennis Twitter and then same game best and least received on the men's side. Okay, well, uh, for the men it would be Nick Kyrgios. Uh, least well received hands down. Wow. Yeah, that's probably obvious. You know, uh, I don't you know, I I would I would struggle to come up with someone else who has, you know, made so many enemies uh in tennis or at least has created so much uh uh opposition shall we say you know in the men's game women's game hmm i i would be lying if i told you i have thought about this a lot and have a ready-made answer so i'd have to defer to you really i i would need to take five minutes that that was a you know so this is a good lesson for me you know when i watch the democratic (laughs) debates study up on the questions you aren't expecting Next time when I apologize for not sending you an outline, say, well, send it to me. I want to be prepared, and I will be sure to send it. Um, All right, in terms of the worst received on the men's, real quick, you mentioned Kyrgios not to pile on to Australian tennis fans. Tomic is right up there on that list as well, uh, just as a provocateur. All right, well, you know what? Okay, let's let's have some parameters here. We need to have stories that people will take seriously as possibilities. <laughs> Well, I would be like, is Nadal, after complaining about the seeding, winning the title, I'd be like, that is that is rich. I'd be upset with that. Um, that would be, but that would be selective. I mean, in terms of universal outrage, yeah. you know, uh, a lot more people hate Kyrgios than Rafa, to be yeah, sure. No doubt. Uh, on the women's side, I could see there being, I mean, 
I'm not even going to touch the Serena stuff, but Sharapova, if she won, there could be a nice little backlash. There could be okay, some. Okay, again, again, we need to have a realistic possibility. <laughs> well, the thing is, a lot of these top players are really nice. I like a lot of them. Uh, Fabio well, Fagnini. Yeah, but I mean, but just like if we're going to find it, we need to find a, a realistic possibility. So like, I you know, see... like, you know, Sergey, I could have said Sergey Stakovsky for the men, but, but that's not a realistic possibility. Okay. So. You can at least imagine Kyrgios getting to the quarters, you know, but not not that he's likely, but you can see him just, you know, riding that serve for a week and maybe a week plus and maybe, maybe getting himself into the conversation, you know, but uh, not not with Stakovsky. Stefano Tsitsipas, an incredibly respectful kid, a guy whose social media stuff I'm such a fan of. If we're talking realistic, I could see him realistically forgetting about the all-white dress code and accidentally wearing, like, a blue shirt in front of the Prince of Wales, and, like, that sets off a storm. Plus, I feel like tennis Twitter is ready to turn on Tsitsipas. They're ready to make him the villain of this next-gen class, the realistic villain, I suppose, outside. Or maybe Zverev. There could be a heavy Zverev backlash because his quarter of the draw a little bit easier than maybe the others. The, oh, he got so lucky. This one doesn't really count. Uh, so I guess those are my only real one. I mean, again, I'd be pretty happy. I would be furious personally if it's like another Federer, Djokovic, or Nadal title because, like, give me something new, please. But that's just me. Well, it's just you, and your wishes are probably not going to be granted at this tournament. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Well, then, speaking of realistic storylines, things people actually care about, let's talk about tomorrow's action. As we mentioned on Monday, uh, half of the gentlemen's draw, half of the ladies' singles' draw, both are in play. Uh, again, for more uh, views of, on Matt's picks and the entire tennis accent team, uh, tennis with an accent team, go check out their website. But just to run through some of those questions to you now, uh, let's stick on just the top half and the bottom half of these draws. The matches we're going to see tomorrow. I'm going to throw this to you. Any early upsets you see in tomorrow's play potentially? Well, um, you know the the match that I'm really well, two matches that I'm really really focused on. Uh, one, let's do one men and one for the women. The men, Kevin Anderson against Air Bear. Uh, that is a that is a huge match because if you look at the second and third rounds in that section, they are much easier than that first round. Uh, it's one of those interesting little sections where the first round match is going to be tougher than the second and, and third round matches. So you know you could reasonably make the argument that whoever wins that match could get to Manic Monday. Uh, so that that's a monster match, and you know it's a it's a total coin flip because we don't know what to expect from Kando with all the time off, the injuries, the rehab, everything. You know he was able to play a match. I believe he lost to Cam Norrie at Queens Club. So you know who the heck knows what we're going to expect. So it's just a matter of finding a way to 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 survive in advance. It's it's definitely a match in which you don't look at the style points or the quality of play is just who can advance on the bracket and whoever does, you know, has a chance of uh, stacking together some matches. So that's on the men's side. And then uh, the, my favorite women's match for uh, Monday. And you, you know, as, as people listen to the podcast, the, some of these matches might already have been completed, but Shea Suway against Yelena Ostapenko. I mean, that, that is a spectacular first round match. Um, Ostapenko is defending semifinal points and Shea is my pick as a surprise semifinalist because she can slice and dice and do everything that's nice on grass. 
And um, so she has a game that can really beguile her opponents. And she's in the bottom half of the draw, which is, you know, going to be totally wide open. Um, So that, that is a, that is a terrific match in terms of a possible upset. Halep against Sasnovich. Remember Sasnovich beat Kvitova in round one a year ago. So that is a definite red, red siren flashing light emoji upset possibility alert. Yeah, I, I completely agree with both of your picks, both definitely on my list of matches to watch. Uh, on the Anderson note, just quick thing, I think you said Nori. Uh, well, beat Nori in three, lost the next round to Simone in three, but still, you know, splitting hairs there. Yes, Kevin Anderson coming off of what? Did he make the final last year's? Am I blending these things together? I believe he was last year's finalist. Wait, wait. Now, Anderson? Yeah. At Wimbledon? Yeah. Yeah. Lost yes. Djokovic. Yeah, so for him to come into this tournament, you know, with as little match play as he has, just a ton of points to defend, obviously that's going to be tremendously difficult for him to do. And yeah, he draws an air bear who, look, has really come of form here in 2019, has had uh, just a solid year all around, around, and you look at his results on the grass, uh, makes the semifinal in Hala, loses to Federer in straights in Eastbourne, uh, wins a couple of matches before losing to Dan Evans, who's won two challengers and has had a great uh, experience thus far uh, on the grass in 2019. He loses uh, in the Netherlands to Goffin. His game is perfectly suited as well for the grass surface. A guy who knows how to serve in volley, a guy who's comfortable stepping up on returns, making that first shot his most decisive shot. If you're Kevin Anderson, a guy who's going to be putting a ton of pressure on you, if, you know, in Air Bear, that's what he's going to be trying to do. He's going to be trying to have Anderson on the defensive and moving forward. That's the last thing you want if you don't trust your body physically. So I agree with you. Major upset alert there. Um, in terms of another first-round match upset alert on the men's side, and I don't really know if this counts given their records. I think du- number 32 seed Dusan Lajovic uh, is like 4-11 and in his career on grass. But that first-round matchup between him and my guy, Hubie Hercatch, I love Hercatch's game. Just... I, I like I don't know what her catch doesn't do well and so at the because he does everything pretty well at this point plus he's got that size that you just love when someone can have that length on grass you love that so I would say those are my two upsets at least on the men's side any thought on the on the her catch Lajovic I, I think it's a surface that plays more to her catch's strengths I, th- I think that that her catch hits a bigger ball and plays an overall bigger game and Lajovic is most comfortable on clay, so I think that should be a Hercatch win. I, w- I, I would not personally view that as an upset. And, and you know, we talked about this a week ago, that seeds on grass that's a ver- and rankings on grass, those are very thorny subjects that, you, you know, you could have a – like Feliciano Lopez, he's unseated. Grigor Dimitrov, he's unseated. They, they are better grass court players than a lot of the seeded players in this draw, and Lajovic would be one example. So I'm glad you said that. You know, Matt, uh, I like to bring you on to talk about the complicated topics. And if we have time, I want to give you some time at the end to talk about that ATP Player Council stuff. But I believe I read earlier this week a piece from you on TennisAccent.com about the seeding formula, the controversy that was that. And, you know, Nadal came out, spoke about how he's not in favor of it, uh, that they don't do it the same in both draws. It's funky. A lot of issues have been brought up about it. Are you done with the topic emotionally, or do you want to give your two cents on it? 
Well, I, I think the, the main thing is that, you know, if, if it was one isolated event, that would be one thing. But this was a tidal wave of events. And so, you know, how, how that change it, it changes the story and it changes our perceptions of everything that's going on. But for better or worse, you know, that is the deep, dark mystery that we're all staring at. And I would be lying, Alex, if I said I had a clue which way it's going to break. Yeah, I, I, that's what's so frustrating, right? And I know it seems like <laughs> funny theme given some of the stuff we talk about, but it seems like one that keeps coming up over our conversations, these structural flaws with the ATP events. And it's just, look, you could argue at the French Open, there are obvious clay court specialist guys who are significantly better on that surface than others, and they could play with the draws there. Uh, that Rafa Nadal isn't just the one seed always at French Open, feels like it should be a rule till he retires, uh, that they don't do the seeding the same way across events at every tournament. It's just, it's just stupid. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's just tennis continuing to soil itself right before a major tournament. You know, have you ever noticed how the worst stories in tennis happen right before major tournaments begin? You know, the Serena Williams cat suit thing and all these tennis governance stories that uh, they seem to happen right before major tournaments begin. Uh, so it would be it would be a nice habit that if tennis could kick it and uh, start a new trend of having good news right before major tournaments. And, you know, and just some brief background, I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole here. I just want to mention for listeners to the mini break podcast that tennis with an accent last this past week did a series called tennis tumult 12 installments 12 short reads but forming a larger series on all the ways in the first 20 years of the open era that the four majors you know scheduled or formatted their tournaments really poorly in one way or another so it's not as though tennis governance tennis scheduling tennis formatting tennis organization have been bad only recently it's been a long-standing thing. It's always been a part of the open era of professional tennis. So, you know, it, it just reinforces the point that these problems are run very deeply and have, have very extensive roots. It's not just something that happened with Federer and the big three era. So you, uh, you brought up the Democratic debates earlier in that theme. On this podcast, say yes if you are in a favor of adjusted seatings at the majors. I would say yes. Yes. I, now, now I am now now and and I wrote a piece this past week at tennisaccent.com not only saying that I approve of surface specific formulas, but I think that if you're going to do surface specific formulas, that also gives you the ability to do NCAA style bracketing, meaning a strict numerical mm. hierarchy where number 1 plays 128 and you go all the way to the middle where 64 plays 65. If you did not have surface-specific formulas, then NCAA-style bracketing would be a problem because you could have you know two guys playing the same matchup three times a year, if not four, at the majors. But as soon as you do implement surface-specific formulas, you stir up that pot so that grass, hard courts, clay, you're going to get appreciably different matchups within that fixed numerical structure. So I think really one complements the other, uh, and, and that is really the way to do uh, the, the formatting for tennis tournaments because 
and here's another thing. Uh, some people have pointed this out that over the last seven years at Wimbledon, the uh, top four seeds for the men have alternated in terms of their halves of the draw. So this year, two was two plays three, one plays four. It has been two, three, and one, four in every odd numbered year going back to 2013. And then in the even years, 2014, 16, and 18, it's been one and three and two and four. So people wonder, what's going on here? Now, I don't, I'm not saying the draws are rigged, but people are getting the impression that the draws are fixed in terms of those seedings. And so the point of NCAA-style bracketing is simply that you fully eliminate any suspicion or any potential you know, computer hacking episode uh, <laughs> that would feed into any conspiracy theory about draws being rigged. And I know that the U.S. Open in 2011, there are some ESPN articles about this. Some, some people on tennis Twitter have shared these articles with me in recent years. There was some controversy at the 2011 U.S. Open that it was, in fact, fixed through either computer hacking or some other uh, backroom intrigue. So if you do NCAA-style bracketing, you remove any and all suspicions that uh, tennis draws are rigged. So I, I think it's just easy to get rid of draws, and getting rid of draws is made easier if you do surface-specific formulas for all the services, not just grass and clay. I, I look. It's a complicated topic, and I'm saying this not to, you know. Again, it's something that certainly needs to be discussed because it's stupid that we have any problems with it. But I feel like the average tennis fan, and by that I mean the casual observer, the one who's only tuning in for the Grand Slams when it's on their TV, you know, they may not notice this problem. But it's the little things. If you get the seedings right, maybe you don't have issues where Dominic Team again is playing, and this are scheduling issues as well. But it just comes back to these structural issues don't allow that casual tennis fan to see the best form of our product to make sure you know maybe draw their interest even that much more because they're seeing the best tennis uh, and uh, obviously they then because it, they're so intrigued they would want to come back I think that's why obviously these these stupid issues come up before the majors because everyone in the tennis world media members of the you know ATP WTA organizations alike know that the spotlight's about to be on them and I, and I think again it's not that this doesn't ruin Wimbledon right like the seating will not it shouldn't ruin the event if you're really upset that you know one place three and two place four on every other years then you're not getting the big picture you're wasting emotional energy respectfully uh but it's just stupid right it's that for if for our product to be uh it's most marketable i suppose it has to be the best form of the game and when you have structural issues it's not going to be the best form of tennis that's really the problems boiled down to the big picture it, it is and and this is why you know to me that the, the the, the, whether you use a surface-specific formula or not, that is not the most pressing issue facing the structuring of these tournaments because you can make a perfectly valid argument for not using formulas. You know, you're honoring 12 months of, of work by just adhering strictly to the tour rankings. I mean, that is a perfectly reasonable – you could debate it, but it's perfectly reasonable. You, you, you might say that, you know, Federer – is able to earn only 500 to 750 points on grass before Wimbledon, whereas Nadal can earn, you know, 3,500, 4,000, 4,500 points on clay. So therefore you need a, a grass formula 
whereas you don't need it quite as much on clay and even less on hard courts. I mean, th that is a clash of reasonable, legitimate arguments. The bigger problem is that Wimbledon uses a formula for the men, and we were seeing Kevin Anderson get four seed spots, go from eight to four as a result of the formula. And then you turn to the women, Angelique Kerber, who didn't finish second the way Kando did a year ago. She won the thing, and she is not able to carry that Wimbledon championship to a much higher seeding. I think the, the people who do the math say that, that Kerber would be seated second, right behind Ash Barty, had uh, the women used a grass seeding formula. But instead, she's number five, and as a consequence of that number five seed, she is in Barty's quarter. And she, if, if there was a seeding formula, Kerber and Barty would not be able to play until at least the semis. And again, with the math, not it would, Kerber would have been second, so she wouldn't have been able to play Barty until the final. So the lack of a seeding formula really is a non-issue for for the men, um, because you know Nadal was not. It's not as though um, Federer was going from a seed outside the top four and being moved into the top four. But with the women, you have that. Kerber is outside the top four without the formula. She would have been inside the top four with the formula. So the lack of a seeding formula for the women is why that top quarter is so ludicrously stacked. It wouldn't have been that way had there been a seeding formula. Yeah, look, I completely agree with you. And I know we want to be uh, respectful to your time. I know you, we've got you know, like a long fortnight ahead of us. You want to get some sleep. I want to get some sleep. So I just want to do two more quick things uh, before we go. I'm going to play a quick game of uh, just, you know, you mentioned your categories different at tennis with an accent. That got me sort of interested. So we're going to do this a little bit differently than usual rather than uh, just, you know, speculate about upsets. I'm just going to give you a potential upset I see as a possibility. I want you to answer possible. And if possible, give uh, me your reasons why, please, because then I, I'm happy to banter with you. And if you think I'm crazy, instead of saying not possible, I want you to say, Alex, you're crazy. And I would make you swear if you weren't an adult and, you know, a respected businessman, but just Alex, you're crazy is fine. You could say effing crazy if you desire. Sure. And feel free to do a lot of these as opposed to a few. I mean, I can extend my time a little bit if, if you would like that. Oh, that's very, look, Mondays with Matt. It's really, it's a day of love. Whether whether it's fifteen love, thirty love, or forty love, absolutely. <laughs> like I said, this is the good stuff. All right, Westoff, give me some sort of sound effect here, please. All right, let's start with the men, and just because you know, top half of play tom uh, is tomorrow, bottom half for the women. Uh, I want to just focus on those sections of the draw right now. So. Uh, I, I mentioned the Hercatch over Lajovic. Um, this is a little bit of projecting, but second round, Lorenzo Sinego knocks off number 16 seed Gael Monfils. Possible or Alex, you're effing crazy? All things are possible with Monfils, so yes. Ah, I, I don't even think that's one you need to explain. We talked about Sinego earlier. Uh, yes, Gael Monfils has not had a good grass season by any standard. Anything's possible. I agree. We don't have to spend long on that. That one's not crazy. Next one. Number 26 seed Paya losing second round to Nicholas Jerry. Possible, Alex, you're effing crazy. Possible. All right, I like it. Well, we talked about Anderson already, so I'll get to my next one. Number 22 seed Stan Wawrinka losing second round to young American Riley Opelka. Possible or Alex, you're effing crazy? Very possible. Oh, can we talk about this one for a little bit? Sure. 
All right, the other one, look, I love Nicolas Jerry. I feel like I've talked about him enough, so we can take a little bit of gap. Big serve, big forehand, lost third round in five sets to Mackie McDonald in what was an incredible match, and really either player could have won. So, uh, you know, I, he's done this on the grass before. Uh, we've talked about how important it is to play serve plus one. You look at his draw, first round versus Seppi, then he gets a guy in Pea who, as I mentioned, 4-11 and 11 on the grass all the time. So that's my quick case for him. I'm trying to make people money if they're trying to bet the underdogs. Um, but... To the Riley Opelka thing, uh, first round, he's got Steb Warinka first round against Bemelmans. For those who don't know, Riley Opelka, the 21-year-old, obviously seven feet tall. That you do know. You may not remember that he is a former junior Wimbledon champion. And no, he hasn't had the best run-up on the grass to this tournament. But best of five sets, you've got to break him uh, you know, three times to win if you want to win in straight sets and not just send it to the tiebreaker, and you'll press your luck there, and that's Riley Opelka tennis. Seven feet, huge serve, moves better than you expect for someone that side, is going to play aggressive tennis and go for broke at will. Why not? Absolutely. I mean, and, and Wimbledon, of all the major tournaments, and really of all the tennis tournaments in the world, Wimbledon is the one that stands out where you can fail to break serve and win. Recall Michael Steek beating Stefan Edberg in the 1991 semifinals without breaking Edberg's serve. He won three breakers. And so that's certainly the template that Opelka can use. You know, a, a, a huge, tall bomb thrower on grass. I mean, John Isner made the Wimbledon semifinals last year with that basic formula. So, you know, I, I would pick Bafrinka to win, but it's very possible that Opelka could up knock him off. I, uh, com- I completely agree with you. Look, Riley Opelka has beaten, uh, you know, he beat John Isner first round at the Australian Open. I don't think he's going to be scared by this moment now, of course. And you have on the flip side, Stan Wawrinka, who, you know, as as good as he looked, he didn't play Eastbourne. He played Queens, I believe. He looked pretty solid there, but he's never been comfortable on the grass. He's a short, and he's not short, but he's a stocky guy. It's hard for him to get side to side. Now, obviously, Opelka is going to be quick points. You don't really have to worry, Stan, physically how stretched you're going to be. But yeah, it gets incredibly frustrating to have 130 mile per hour serves bomb at you and taking funky bounces off of the grass. Uh, so if Opelka can get through his first round match, give himself an opportunity to play Stan, that would just be another great opportunity for the young American uh, to shine at the big stage. Um, all right, another one, second round, uh, Kesmenovic over number 28 seed, Benoit Pair. Possible or you're crazy? Benoit Pair hates Wimbledon, so him losing and, and not being at his best at Wimbledon is very possible. All right, now two more crazy ones for you on the men's side, and then we'll switch to the women's real quick. Yuri Vesely comes through qualifying, knocks off Tommy Paul, matches up with number six seed Alex Zverev, whose best result was the fourth round here two years ago in a match that he should have beaten Milos Raonic and may even be one of the matches that inspired this podcast because of how frustrated I was after that performance. He has him on the brink in the fourth, and then I think it was 6-1 in the fifth, versus the big lefty in Yuri Vesely. And how often have we talked about, I'm not even going to repeat it again, why a big lefty is beneficial Possible or Alex, you're often crazy. Very possible. Vesely's made the fourth round at Wimbledon before. He has a huge game. He's actually a massive underachiever uh, in in men's tennis over the past five six years. He certainly has the capability to take out Zverev if Zverev isn't focused. Ugh. If Zverev loses, I will be heartbroken. I, as a fellow Alexander, obviously my allegiances are clear, but it's just like. He's supposed to be the leader of the... Like, 
I love Stefan. Uh, Pass is great, but I'm teams Zverev all the way. I'm sorry for making that known, but it's just, I, I just, he hits the ball different. I've seen a version of Pass before. I've never seen someone do what Alex Zverev does, and I just, I'd be crushed if he loses. I'm so, it's, it's like the inner Murray fan in me. It's like, you did this to Andy too. Don't do this to someone else. Well, we can ask Yvonne Lendl how that feels. <laughs> Literally in the player box. Um, All right, two more real quick. I Sorry, on the men's. Hasa over Raonic second round. Possible or you're crazy? Uh, uh, now, which player against Raonic? Hasa. Uh, yes. I mean, Haas almost beat Rafael Nadal in the first round, uh, or not the first round, the second round of Wimbledon in 2010. Definitely has skills, so that's possible, yes. Oh, that, this is upsetting that there hasn't been a single effing. Pre- it, it speaks to, I suppose, the parody on the men's side. All right, last one. Yes. Absolutely. Giron over number over number ten seed Karen Kiachnov, and that would also mean Giron over Feliciano Lopez as well. First round. This might be the one where I have you. Possible or you're crazy? But no, it's also very possible. Oh, do you want to talk about the case? Why? Just because Hatchinoff almost lost to Gregoire Barrer in the second round of Roland Garros. I mean, the idea that he can fully be depended on to sail through an early round match, even against a, 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 you know, a player whom some casual fans might regard as a tomato can. I don't, I don't regard Giron as a tomato can, but I, I don't think Hatchinoff has reached the stage in his evolution where, you know, early round matchups where he's obviously favored to win our, you know, absolute lock city, take it to the bank. I don't think he's reached that stage yet. Uh, I think three out of five sets. See, I'm going to, I'm going to get myself here and say, Alex, not impossible. Uh, I just think three out of five sets suits him so well. Everything about his game. I just, the physicality, the way he's able to impose himself, regardless of the surface He's just so. It's, it would be really tough for Marcos Giron to win his first uh, Grand Slam match, then knock out the ten seed in the same tournament. Just emotionally, that's a very tough thing to do. Uh, and just game wise, I worry for Giron. I don't know how he'd hurt Kachanov. You know, Kachanov with the huge serve, huge forehand, he'd be able to play a lot of aggressive tennis. And you know, it's so hard to play when you're playing defense on grass. I don't know, though. Yeah, sure. I'll take it. Possible. All possibles on the men's side. Did I miss any upsets, or do you think I covered them there? Anything you'd want to mention on that top half of the draw? Uh, you know, not particularly. I would just, I would only say that, you know, it really the top, it's interesting how at this Wimbledon, with the days of play in week one, the men's top half, I mean, you know, minus Djokovic, obviously, but for the most part, the men's top half and the women's bottom half both have the really, really wide open quarters. And more specifically, the Zverev quarter for the men and the um, Pliskova quarter for the women, both very, very wide open. You could get you know any of seven, eight possible semifinalists from those quarters. And then so that's going to be Monday, Wednesday, Friday, those two halves of the respective draws playing and then. Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, you have the showstopper halves uh, with Federer and Nadal for the men, and then that absolutely loaded top half for the women with Barty and Kerber and Serena and Bencic uh, and Anisimova and Kvitova and Stevens and Kanta. Wow. So it's, yeah. it's so Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday are going to be the huge tickets, and uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, it's more going to be about the wide-open matches with – 
players having career opportunities against soft draws to make a name for themselves and make a deep run. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Let's just wrap up the men's then real quick. On this top half, your two semifinalists and the person you see emerging from this side of the draw. Djokovic over Raonic. Ooh. So Raonic is my surprise semifinalist from the quarter. All right, I can accept that. I'm going to take Zverev because, again, my allegiances are clear. Uh, and I'm, I will have our full bracket, by the way, on the crack rackets, Turnitopia, which it's probably too late to sign up for that now if you're listening to this on Monday. But hopefully you saw the sign-up list for that early on. I'll take Djokovic and Zverev. Uh, oh, come uh, on. You can't take Zverev in a semi over Djokovic. I mean, I could. Uh, who's going to listen to this? Me, you, and my mother? I mean, it's a free It's a free country, but now there <laughs> I would say you're flipping crazy. Uh, a part of me wants to take Medvedev. Like, I love Medvedev. I, I would uh, – take... Okay, a part of you does, but is that the wise part of you? Well, so part of me – again, my surprise quarterfinalist, I guess. Not really a surprise. I think Medvedev advances over Tsitsipas to get to that uh, showdown with Djokovic. Uh, fine, I'll take Novak Djokovic in the final because there are stakes. I just want you to know, if you were Max Rothman, I would have picked Alex Zverev there, but I need your res- I, I value your respect more than that. I mean, just just stopping the conversation for a little bit, do you really think that the next gen is ready now to take over? I, I yeah. certainly do not think so. So, and I don't, and I don't think it's particularly close either. So, take over is a. It depends what you mean by takeover. You look at the title winners, the biggest ranking movers this year, uh, just off the top of my head, guys who have solidified themselves as top 15 players. You know, Chorch isn't going out of the top 15 anytime soon. Obviously, we'll throw, I forgot to mention, Zverev's been on top of that group for so long. Him being up there, Tsitsipas, I think he's got, what, one, two titles on the year. He's made a final of the Masters. He's made his move. I said Chorch, Kachnov, uh, who, not the best year, but I think he's made, what, two fourth rounds at Slam. So, again, making his move, crack the top 10 for a hot second. Daniil Medvedev, a couple of titles on his resume this year, played that great match in the Australian Open against Djokovic, uh, had his run of success as well. Then you get to FAA, who's made his jump into the top 25. We talked about Fritz, who's number 24 in the race. Um, If you mean make their move, as in, I think they are now... And uh, there's probably, I'll say, 14 next-gen guys I could make a case for winning any ATP 250 event they enter, depending on what the draw looks like. I would say there's probably 10. You could make the case that if they're in an ATP 500 draw, they're certainly in play for the title. And then you look at, what, the Masters and the Slams, and there's probably, I'm a little more bullish than most. And this is, again, just on the men's side. I would say I have more faith in Zverev. Draw aside, it sucks for Tsitsipas that he's got the Medvedev-Djokovic section, but he showed a level where if it broke open, sure, he made a semifinal already this year. Um, I think Kachanov physically, the way he pushed Nadal to the brink last year at the U.S. Open, he could, I guess, sort of sustain, last out a storm. If it's like a like a Del Poacher sort of run to the U.S. Open title or the Chilich run where you're the last man standing and you've just got so much power that people at the end of the year don't right, have can it. I, in the can t- I stop you there? Can it's, I stop you there? That was you, quite the rant. You mentioned, you, mentioned, you mentioned Del Potro, 
And Del Potro brings up an, an instructive example about being ready to win major championships or at least make the final. You will recall in 2009, Joe, uh, Del Potro lost three love and love to Federer uh, in the Australian Open quarterfinals. All right. But so it was he got absolutely torched, but he had the experience of playing Federer in the latter stages of a major tournament. So what did he do as 2009 went along? Roland Garros semifinals, he took Federer five sets, led two sets to one. So he got really, really close. He played Federer on fundamentally even terms. He obviously learned a lot from his experience in Australia and applied it to Roland Garros. And then U.S. Open, the masterpiece, you know, taking away that second set when Federer was 5-4, 30 love, finding a way back after going down two sets to one, winning the fourth set tiebreaker, steamrolling in the fifth set. So it, it was a process of evolution, but the instructive point is that Del Potro gained two experiences against Federer in major tournaments, and those that accumulation of experience is what enabled him to then win the U.S. Open. If he had not played Federer at, at least once, and probably not both times, earlier in 2009, he probably would not have had the overall experience and awareness to put all the pieces together at the U.S. Open. So let's transfer this to Zverev. He played Djokovic at the Roland Garros quarterfinals, and you know he got he lost in straights. But the essential thing is he had that experience of playing Djokovic. So it was good simply to have that moment, which I I would imagine taught him a lot about how to carry himself in a five-set match against Djokovic. He had not had that experience before. So one would think that the goal for these next-gen guys is not really to win. They're not in position to do that just yet, but it is precisely to play and get accumulations of experience against the big three more and more. So, I mean, you know, Tsitsipas did beat Federer, but one would have to think that if, you know, by chance they, they met at Wimbledon, that Federer would have the experience to call upon and win that match. But beyond that, just for, in terms of the whole group as a cohort, they need to collect these experiences against the big three. And if they spent the second half of 2019 and the early half of 2020 just getting those experiences, they don't have to win, but just getting those experiences, then by the end of 2020 and then heading into 2021, they would truly be ready to know how to handle these kinds of situations. But right now they're so far behind the curve because with, you know, a few exceptions, Tsitsipas in particular, having played both Federer and Nadal uh, at the Australian Open, for the most part, these guys are match poor in terms of having those kinds of educational moments on court. So they need to simply collect those moments before they really even think about winning. So that, that underscores my point of why the next gen really isn't yet ready to to stand up on even terms against the big three at the major tournaments. This is a process that's going to need at least 12 months, if not 18, to really flesh itself out. Uh, there's a counterpoint in there, but that was such an eloquently made case. You're not wrong. Again, this gets back to the same thing. I'm ready for this excitement. I may be jumping the gun a little bit, but I've seen a level of play from all of these guys. And maybe, again, you, you talk about there's not that sustained level of play. They haven't done it weekend number two yet. Uh, but so many of these guys have flashed the talent. And, 
you know, we haven't seen. I don't think you know Djokovic plays in the Boodle, so does does that count as a grass warm-up? No. So we haven't. We don't know what to expect from him yet on this surface. Roger Federer wins his warm-up, but three out of five over two weeks. We know uh, the dent that can take on him. And you know, last year he loses in a match. He has match points and is up two sets to love against Kevin Anderson. So it is possible to beat Roger Federer at Wimbledon. Oh, it's just like okay. I guess I'm starting with the approach to my premise as well. If if my hope of one of Djokovic, uh, Federer, and Nadal isn't going to win is going to come true, it's probably got to be one of the next gen guys. So I'm still sticking with yes. I think they can do it. Well, you know, one next gen could certainly make the semis if only because you know that Kando quarter is so wide open, someone's got to advance to the semis out of it. And and if you're making the semis, you are, I would say, by definition, a title contender. So simply for that draw-specific reason, your point is valid. Yeah, I appreciate it. I'm always down to have a valid point. Uh, but another valid point our producer Daniel Westhoff would say is that we have far exceeded the point of where this should be called a mini break. So I'm going to use this to transition quickly to the women's draw. Same game real quick. Uh, possible upset or Alex, are you crazy? Uh, let's start with who do I want to start? Uh, and, and, and you know what? Hey, if anything in the bottom half of the draw is possible, let's just get that settled. I agree. That's why I don't have many crazy upsets because I feel like anything I say, you'd be like, "Yeah, that makes sense." Uh, anything in the bottom half, really? Jennifer Brady over Martich. Sure. <laughs> Collins over Sevastova, second round. Sure. Azarenka over Kasatkina, second round. I would not even regard that as an upset. I would favor Azarenka if that happened. Yeah, I agree with you. Then the other one I want to spend a quick second talking about, Coco Goff versus Venus Williams. Have you gotten a chance to see Goff play yet? I have not. Oh, it's just the talent. It's just oozing out of her. I mean, both wings, just the ability to change direction, put balls away. I mean, would it shock you to see her? I guess you haven't seen her, but Goff over Venus, would you consider that an upset? Oh, I definitely consider it an upset because you know the, the v- Wimbledon is Venus's home. So I, you would you would like to think that Goff would need at least a little bit of an adjustment period before she figures out how to handle not only her idol but also the the enormity of everything that is Wimbledon. Sticking on the theme of young players, Katie McNally over Heather Watson. Sure. And then Katie McNally over Conteve. Yes, because Contevate has not had a particularly good season, and Contevate is always capable of losing a match she should win. <laughs> Which is why I say Shelby Rogers over Contevate. For the very same reason, sure. Uh-huh. Um, the winner of— uh, just, about, just about everything is possible unless you're talking about the real— heavyweights on the WTA side. Well, here's where it gets interesting on this bottom half. The winner of Ostapenko C match will make the fourth round of this tournament. Well, I have Shea going to the semis, so definitely on board that train. That's your surprise semifinalist? Yeah, I mentioned it earlier in the the show. Yeah, again, give me the case one more time. She can slice and dice and do do everything nice on grass. Remember that turn of phrase? Ah, oh, there it is. You're right. That's the honestly at this point there you have so many good ones it's hard to keep track. <laughs> the checks in the the checks in the mail, Alex. <laughs> Hopefully it's from Stats Insider. Uh no, sorry, that one was for me. Um 
All right, let's think. Other crazy ones. Madison Keys, the 17th seed in this side of the draw. She makes the semifinals. Does that surprise you or not really? I have her in the final. Ah, oh, again, I should have read these. See, it's hard because there's so many predictions and you're like cycling through who predicted what in the tennis world and so so you so you have Madison Keys in the finals. One more time, make the case. Well, first of all, it's it's about darn time that she makes a semi at Wimbledon. It's it's amazing that this is the one major where she has not yet made the semis. That's pretty crazy with her huge game and her monster serve. And so she landed in that bottom half of the draw where everything is possible. So, I mean, this is the time for Madison Keys to make an especially deep run at Wimbledon. And it's not as though she doesn't do well at majors either. You know, she's made quarters in five of the last seven appearances at at, at all of the majors. So why not her? Why not now? I I do think that it all lines up really well for Madison Keys. The fact that, uh, you know, Pliskova is um, an especially high-seeded player also in that bottom half of the draw. And Pliskova is someone I just don't trust at Wimbledon. I mean, my my basic uh, mantra is you, you don't trust players until they prove to be worthy of trust. And so for lack of a better alternative, um, I, you know, I think Halep could make an extremely deep run. And I think she and Keyes re- would either play in the fourth round of the quarters. Uh, I'm not sure which. I'm not uh, looking at a draw sheet right now. But um, – I, you know, I could certainly see Halep advancing, but I really think that it, it's overdue for Madison Keys to make an especially deep run at Wimbledon. My Wimbledon uh, quarterfinals, that bottom half of the draw, I have, uh, or, or sorry, my quarterfinals, my semifinals bottom half, I have number 27 seed Sophia Kennan versus number 17 seed Madison Keys. I was feeling particularly bold, so my question to you, that'll be our last one. Possible or Alex, you're effing crazy? Very possible, and I think that if, if Kennan beat Osaka in the third round, not very many people would be surprised given Osaka's distinct lack of comfort on grass. I just think the way Sophia Kennan can do a little bit, again, variety, something we talked about on a previous podcast, she can do a little bit of everything. And no, the serve's not a huge weapon for her, but it doesn't matter because she makes up ground with anything else. If you put her on the defensive with your return, that next ball, you don't know if you're going to get a slice, a lob, some junk, whatever it is, Sophia Kennan can do it. So yeah, I... um. Uh, there again bottom half of the draw i'm just so excited for wimbledon to start i guess and with that being said uh i guess we we can wrap here any final thoughts on wimbledon as we had into day one matt well um your listeners just might be expecting some overall predictions so for me Djokovic over federer for the men's title and ash barty over madison keys for the women's title See, uh, (laughs) this is one of my crusades from earlier in the year. I'm trying not to give first week predictions so that I don't get myself in trouble because I've gotten myself in trouble in the past. And that way, no first week predictions of winner. When it comes second week and it's the round of 16, I can give my ultimate, this is who I think is going to win uh, decision. But you have put me on the spot. So on the men's side, I mean, to pick against Djokovic is just stupid, right? Yep. All right, so that being said, I'll take Alex Zverev. No, I'm just kidding. I'll roll Novak Djokovic. <laughs> I'll take, uh, what do we say, Bernard Tomic. I, I want the most people to be upset as possible. Uh, yeah, Djokovic in the final there. On the women's side, I just gave my... Uh, I want to pick Sophia Kennan so badly. Every instinct says, Alex, do it. 
Well, the WTA is so wide open that a Kennan pick would make total sense. I'm being serious. Yeah, but there's just no way, Sophia. Ken- I just don't think to win your first slam at Wimbledon, dare I say, Sharapova-esque. It's just so difficult to do. Uh... Hey, Steve, Sharapova is her role model. Yeah, it fits. Do I roll with it? No, I I can't. It will not. No, it won't. I'll text you afterwards and be like, but actually, you know you want to. Yeah. I'll be like, Matt, I said Pliskova, right? Yeah, let's go with Pliskova. I'll be like, I'll be like, can we record one more thing where I say Pliskova and Westoff will just throw it in a little edit after the fact? Um, uh, I'm. Uh... You know, it's like it's like Walter White in Breaking Bad. You know, he he's he's become Heisenberg. You can't you know unring that bell. You are who you are. <laughs> You, you can't. You, you've gone down this road. You got to finish out the journey. All right, then I'll finish out the journey properly. I'm taking Belinda Benchish. I love her game. I've loved watching her play more than any other player in 2019 uh, on the WTA side. I'm taking her on the top half of the draw. That is my true pick. Is I didn't want to say my Benchich Kennan pick out loud uh, for a finals, but I'm taking Benchich. There you go, and it's a perfectly reasonable pick. Yeah, a little twist. We just got done with a Roland Garros in which we we almost had an Anisimova Vondrushova all teenager final. That's what I'm saying. I don't know if you can tell, but I slant towards the next gen players. Women, men, doesn't matter. I'm in for fresh blood. I just think the time is now. This year, this entire season has felt different than any uh, than any season I can remember in the past. You know, maybe eight nine years in the way that this new class of players seem to be breaking through at all levels of events. You know, from 250 to major. I I just again, no one's taken that. La- I guess Naomi Osaka has taken that last step and become a major champion at a young age, but so few other players have done it at this point. I think it's their time. I really do. Well, and that's and that's correct. And the point to emphasize is that on the women's tour. On the women's side, unlike the men, you know, there's no dependable every tournament roadblock. You know, this is not 2015 with Serena Williams always being the obvious overwhelming favorite at every major tournament she plays. Where's that consistent player on the WTA tour who you know is always going to be in semis uh, at all four majors during the year? There isn't. There isn't that player. You know, I mean, Kerber might be particularly strong at Wimbledon, but is she there at all four majors? She isn't. And there's there's just really there's no player who fills that role right now. There's a power vacuum. So from that chaos, anyone can emerge. And the younger generation has proven to be very adept at taking advantage. And you don't see that same dynamic with the men. Yeah. I completely agree with you, and that's why this Fortnite is going to be so fascinating. Uh, I feel like we have covered as much. The, what the crazy thing is, we only talked about two halves of the draw. And for our listeners who are wondering, well, what's going on with the second half of the draw? Be sure to check out tomorrow mini break podcast as well. I believe I am sitting down with another Matt. Uh, I'm going to say you guys politically correct answer are tied for first in terms of my favorite Matts, Matt, Matt Stokowiak, uh, our cracked rackets writer, who will break down that Tuesday play in the second bottom half. But for all of that content, you know, check out our website, crackedrackets.com, social media, Facebook, Twitter. Instagram. You guys know the deal by now. Matt, one last time, pl- plug the website. Let us know what, what uh, let our listeners know what you guys are going to be up to this first week. Well, we're just going to be trying to cover the heck out of the tournament, and we're going to have some really rip-roaring 
podcasts. Uh, part is going to be a two-part interview with a big name in, in men's tennis. Uh, part one is going to drop on Tuesday. Part two is going to drop either late, very late Saturday or very early on middle Sunday. Lots of coverage. Um, you know, I do want to call attention to Mert Ertunga at Murtov's, the letter T, desk. Uh, he is one of the best X and O match report guys in the business. So he's going to be writing match reports for us. You definitely want to follow him for getting the, the, the best granular, tactical, detailed match reports in the tennis industry, in my opinion. So that's one particular shout out to a member of our staff. And it, he's in the continental U.S., right? He's based out of here. Uh, he's rooted in Pittsburgh, but he covered uh, Roland Garros uh, in Paris, and he's going to be on site at the All England Club because he also writes for the leading tennis magazine in Turkey. Uh-huh. I mean, he, he is of Turkish heritage, so that gets him into those tournaments. But uh, um, he, he, he spends time in, 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 the, in the States and works in the States. But uh, he's been covering those tournaments abroad, and, and he's going to be at the All England Club for the next fortnight. We're going to have to find a way to get him, to get Andrew, to get Sakib, the whole team, you know, Bree, on, on the podcast. Yeah, we're going to, we might have to knock out guests. Yeah, so we'll have to work on that in the future. But again, please, TennisAccent.com, support Matt and all they do. Such a, tremendous, uh, such a tremendous coverage of all of your favorite tennis events. And again, it's Grand Slam time. All, all systems go. We are ready to rock and roll. Uh, but with that being said, the— Alex? Can I show you that I did my homework this week? Uh, don't tell me you watched the YouTube clips of me playing tennis. That's the break. <laughs> Even better. Oh, I love it. Well, what I will say is hold that thought because I have to give a shout. And by the way, Westoff, you got to leave all of that in. But we have to give a shout out as always to our wonderful team at Cracked Rackets. I have to give a shout out to my incredible uh, co-host Matt Zemek, who again tennisaccent.com. To our super producers Max Flinger, Daniel Westoff. I'm your host Alex Gruskin. Matt, give it to me one more time, please. What do we tell our listeners? In my Mohammed Leani voice. That's the break. <laughs> Perfect. And everyone, enjoy Wimbledon. We'll see you all week long.